Product managers give 100% of themselves to their customers. But who's there for the PM? The Product Management Center at the University of Washington. It's a global hub for knowledge, community, and impact. I'm Jeff Schulman, founding director of the Product Management Center and your host on this show, How to Succeed in Product Management. Each week, I'm joined by my co-host, Red, and some of the best product managers in the business. Together, we're having candid conversations that help you understand the challenges that a product manager faces, how they overcome them, and the tools and frameworks that will help you thrive in the role. So let's start the show. Welcome, everybody. My name is Jeff Schulman, and I am a professor at the University of Washington's Foster School of Business, where we've started the Product Management Center uh, in an effort to build a more diverse, inclusive, and skilled product management community. One of the things I'm most proud of that we do is the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator, empowering professionals from historically marginalized communities to land their first PM role. We're doing that because, you know, all too often products are prioritized by the few and for the few, and we want to fix that. And the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator is one way we're fixing that, and I hope you will all Google that and volunteer for the accelerator if you are a product manager. And the other thing we're doing is bringing some of the best product managers in the business, making them accessible to everyone, and giving a space where you could get your questions answered. And we're doing that right here on LinkedIn Live and putting this out as a podcast, the How to Succeed in Product Management podcast, available on every major podcasting app. And I'm joined each week by, I first have to go in reverse order before we get to our guest today. I just have to say the people have been hungry for Red. Red, we've missed you. It's been too long, my friend, too long. I don't even recognize Clubhouse anymore. It looks so different. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Clubhouse has changed as we've moved to LinkedIn. And Red, it's great to have you here. Red, tell people, we're going to talk about people over product question mark. So hopefully we get some people here to debate with our guest, Anna Marie, as to what's more important to fall in love with and what's more important to invest your heart and soul into people or the product that you create. And so Red, tell people how they could ask their questions of Anna Marie and Sumeya or how they can share their perspective on the debate. Absolutely. Well, for podcasters who are out there in the ether listening to the show post live, we do have a Slack channel we created. The best way to get in there, I don't know if you're getting them, Jeff, but I get them all the time, a message saying, hey, I'd love to join this thing and get involved. And you can ask questions after the fact. You know, a lot of the people who speak are actually in there and they're human. We're real. We're not bots believe it or not, though really, really good looking people. What can I say? As far as getting in touch now and getting questions asked now, you could raise your hand. There's a opportunity for you to jump up on stage, ask a question. If you're shy and you don't want to do that, you can LinkedIn message me. Uh, I'll keep an eye. I've got my LinkedIn open and I'm happy to ask questions on your behalf. And in general, you know, one of the things that we want more than anything else is it's not just about questions. This is an inclusive format. We have one speaker representing their opinion to the community, and we have a multitude of opinions here on stage that have been on the show month over month, almost year over year, Jeff. Is that right? Just representing what we can do to pull people into the world product. So if you're jumping in, you're listening live, get ready to rock out with product managers, with product leaders, and have an opportunity to be heard or share some wisdom. So with that, Jeff, hopefully that gives you exactly what you're looking for. And if not, too bad. Back to you. Too bad. Take it or leave it. Now I'll turn to our guest, Anna-Marie. Anna-Marie, first, tell us a little bit about your journey in product management, and then tell us 
why did you pitch this topic? Why do you think this is an important? Don't give away your stance yet. Let's let the drama unfold, but but tell us why <laughs> you pitched this topic. Totally. Well, thank you first and foremost, Jeff, for having me on the show. It's great to be here with you and Red and Samaya. Love the mission. Huge fan of opening up the product environment to more inclusive builders. It is so critical because product managers are so often, you know, making the calls on what way things are being built. And when you have very kind of identical looking set of people making those calls, you get identical sets of things being built for a smaller and smaller portion of humanity. So I really appreciate the work that you're doing. And it's great to be here today. So my background, I've been in product management for, gosh, seven, eight years now. Before that, I actually have a whole prior career in galleries and art management and have a deeply practical degree in medieval art history. So let me tell you about all the job opportunities that were knocking down my door when I graduated. So I, you know, was living in New York, managing an art gallery, transitioned to product management over the course of kind of a a few years of just doing small things at various startups. I've worked at uh, companies like Yammer, which is acquired by Microsoft, Coinbase, Hover, and Asana. And I'm currently working at Vowel, which is a video conferencing 2.0, video conferencing kind of like Zoom meets Loom. So you can take all your meetings and search them, share them, you know, share that insight instead of having another meeting to catch someone up on something they missed and, you know, catch yourself up on things you missed at 2x speed. So really trying to transform meetings. And our mission here is to make meetings more inclusive and worthwhile. And so including people around the planet in the same kind of decision making, as well as including people on the call, talk time percentages, things like that. So yeah, that's a little bit of a background on me in product. And and one of the things that just really stood out to me over the course of my career is how much content there is out there about like how to be the best product manager, how to run the best, you know, you know, you may use Agile or Scrum, or you may be thinking about tripods and iterative roadmaps and things like that. But it's all these very kind of practical, tactical skills and so little out there about kind of the person-to-person aspect of product management. And that's really where I've seen, per your podcast name, that's where I've seen a lot of the success of product management come through is people who really anchor heavily on that person-to-person aspect. And I have a lot of thoughts on a lot of different aspects there. I'm happy to chat with you about them today. All right. Thank you for being here. And then Sumeya. Everybody on Clubhouse knows who you are. You've been doing this for, as Red said, over a year, sharing some brilliant insights. But I'm not sure that everybody, you know, we have new audience here on LinkedIn. So real quickly, even though it's repetitive to our podcast listeners, tell us a little bit about yourself. And then what do you think? Should product managers obsess over their product or over people? (laughs) Uh, Well, it's a pleasure being here with you all. And Red, good to see you. I think... Well, actually, let me go over my background very quickly in a minute. So I have been in the product management world for almost 20 years, both in supporting roles or as an engineer or an analyst, as a manager, as a CPO. And, you know, my latest role, I've been working on the B2B side with VMware, building products there. So always happy to talk about the craft, the people and the practices around product management. In terms of today's topic, I won't necessarily talk about some of the things I think about when thinking about this topic specifically. And the first one is a lot of what we do as product managers is about balancing tension and balancing what's right at the right moment. (laughs) So sometimes strategy is important. Sometimes people are important. Sometimes both are important, but you always have to make choices. And I think I agree with Anna Marie that there are a lot of skills product managers have to build around the people management part. 
that maybe we don't talk about a lot. You see, you know, you hear about those topics coming up when you're talking about managers come up a lot for product management. Although, honestly, I think that has been changing over the past decade. You hear it come up in topics around influence without authority. You hear it talking about motivating and inspiring the team. What does leadership look like? What does a balanced team look like? And those are all people-related skills. So I think when we're talking about balancing tension for product managers, this is one of the tensions that plays out sometimes in a macro way where you can notice it right away and you're saying, oh, we have a tension between people versus product. But sometimes it plays in little ways, even in a backlog where you have to make choices based on what's right at that moment. So I'm excited for us to talk about, you know, those equations. What do those choices look like? What do skills around people, you know, empowering people, building people up, inspiring people look like? So it's a great topic for sure. All right, Samaya, thanks for joining us every single week as we try to build a more diverse, inclusive, and skilled product management community here at the Product Management Center. Anna-Marie, thanks for pitching this topic and being here today. Dive into it. Let's see if we can get some knowledge shared. What is the most important aspect that you want to impart upon the listener? Totally, totally. So I think Samaya kind of touched on it a little bit with this concept of, you know, influence without authority. I think one of the things that's really interesting is that you end up with people who you may obsess about the product, you may obsess about your customers, you may have collected all this insight and have a direction that you're really excited to take the company. And if the company isn't really excited to go there with you, you're a completely ineffectual product manager. And I remember the first time, you know, I kind of like worked my way up through the product ranks and I was feeling kind of hot to trot, senior PM at Microsoft. And I transitioned to working at Coinbase. And I remember the first month that I was there was a complete cluster of an emotional experience for me because I thought, I had thought like, oh, you know, I've really invested in like getting good at product management. I understand what to do, how to make the calls, how to understand customers, data, integrate, you know, and motivate the team, everything like these skills I've been building. And then I walk into this new environment and I can't get anything done. And I'm just like, did I forget everything? Like what happened? And it really started to kind of click in at that time that a lot of what I had been building in terms of those tactical skills while I was at Microsoft was also developing the A, the relationships and B, kind of the confidence of the team and the organization that the confidence they placed in me. And so all those skills would be moot without that confidence. And so when I transitioned organizations, I walked in with skills and with none of that confidence from the rest of the organization. And so it was a real big mismatch. And it took me a couple, I'd say a month, month and a half to really figure out like where I had kind of misplaced my energy and be like, oh, right. Let me like start ground up. Let me work really, really directly on these person-to-person relationships and kind of demonstrate the skills that I have on an individual level with the key people in mind, key stakeholders that mattered, in order to kind of start to build up some of that momentum. So I really see that the people skills that you have person-to-person and not necessarily direct report, you know, manager direct report, but, you know, with everyone you interact with, you kind of build up this incredible, almost springboard, almost like trampoline. And the more taught it is, the more woven it is in the organization, the further you can spring with all the things that you want to do with your team or with the product or where you think everything needs to go. So that's, you know, kind of one of the first big places where I learned that lesson. And I'm curious to hear, Sumia, you mentioned that like influence without authority. I'm curious to hear if your perspectives on, you know, that influence and the people relationships that come into that. Well, I think you brought up a point 
around when you moved roles, like from one company to the other, that resonated with me a lot. You know, you hear the stories, for example, of these super successful CEOs who go from one company to the next, and they try to do the same thing or implement similar framework. And I'm using the word framework because it's an easy catch-all for something a little more complex than just that. And then it fails in the other place because there are so many other moving parts and things that intangibles that you can't really define on paper, but are just as important to the success of anything that you want to do, whether you're a CEO who has authority over everyone or a PM who has authority over no one. And so I've seen that myself happen at work or in moving roles or even actually in working with different clients. So in in some of my roles, roles, I end up working in a consultative or advisory capacity with people who buy our software, let's say in different companies. I'm not specifically talking about VMware. And something works so well with one client and then that same approach with another one doesn't. And so ultimately, it comes down to a number of different skills. The first one, of course, is the power of observation, like being able to you know, meet people, ask good questions, you know, the curiosity piece there becomes really important. And then observing and then building trust. So the building trust piece is probably one that's very meaningful and big, and it matters to a lot of people. Red, you probably care about that a lot in the sales world too. So I want to highlight that just as an example of something that when you initially start working with people for the first time you would care about, specifically from a people perspective. And then once you have trust, then you can push a lot of the things you want to get done through. But without trust, ultimately, a lot of the other influencing things you want to do are going to fall apart. Yeah, absolutely. I've seen that time and time again at organizations, especially larger and larger organizations that start having very formal review cycles and maybe sets of rounds of review cycles. So maybe you have a product review and then that's successful. So you go up another layer and then review, you know, with the VP of product potentially. And one thing that I've seen happen to a lot of more junior PMs is they get kind of stuck in this round robin of reviews where, you know, they bring a product spec, maybe a prototype of something, they present it, they get a lot of questions and like, okay, okay, I'm going to go figure out the answers. They go back and they do more research. They like pull another framework in, they come back, they do another round of review, they get more questions and they go back and back and back and back. And the thing that I've seen that they're doing incorrectly there is when you leave a review and you take away, you know, okay, you know, my manager or my director or my VP has all these questions, you know, they really need to see the, me get all the answers to these things. When you take that away, you know, one time, sure, maybe. But when you start seeing that as a pattern, really, instead of signaling like, oh, I need to go do a bunch more work, the thing that that signals to me is that you need to do a bunch more trust building. And there's something missing there in that trust relationship. And you're not necessarily, you're never going to like work your way out of that trust gap there, right? There's something more fundamental that you need to address. And so that's where I've really encouraged PMs that I've seen kind of get stuck in this, you know, trust cycle, if you will, where they're they're not developing trust and they think they're just going to like do a bunch of research and research their way into trust, that's not always going to be the case. And so the thing that I've always, you know, encouraged when I see this happen is you need to go directly to the people involved, try to figure out who it is that doesn't trust you, like try to have some conversations, try to figure out what it is that motivates their trust. What is it that they're worried about? What is it that they're excited about? And try to get that one-to-one conversation to try to understand, to your point, Sumia, to be curious and to make 
good observations, to ask good questions, and try to demonstrate that you're the kind of person who can understand whatever it is that's giving them pause, and then speak to that thing. Because oftentimes, you know, people are not always going to be asking for the feedback or the research or the question that's actually going to assuage their fears and concerns. Their fears and concerns are going to be a layer below that, and they may not even be able to, you know, put good words to it. So that's something that I've always kind of encouraged people to do is like, don't spend cycles trying to do a bunch more work and a bunch more research, try to get a direct relationship with the person in question. I love that. I think that also, if you work that muscle, it is a muscle that's similar to the user-centered thinking that a lot of product managers need to have. Sometimes it's actually easier to talk about user-centered approach and research, et cetera, than it is to talk about using that approach within the team. But truly, every single person on the team, you cannot have an approach that's at scale. Each person on the team has their own Mm -hmm. motivations, have their own fears, have their own, you know, purpose means a different thing to each one of them. And of course, there are lots of exercises that you see teams do often to try to align around some of those things. But at the end of the day, every person on the team might have this slight difference in needs that as a PM, for you to inspire them and to get them to execute well, there is more work to do there or as much work as you would do essentially for your customer. Totally. Absolutely. It's interesting how much it matters, you know, kind of around and sideways with your teammates that you're working with and how to inspire and motivate, you know, the designers and researchers and engineers that you work with day to day. And everyone is motivated by very different things. Like we always think you may not even think like what it is that motivates you. You just are motivated by the things that motivate you. And you natively assume that other people are also motivated by those things. But we have vastly different motivations as humans. And so that's one thing to kind of like check your assumptions at the door as, you know, you learn to do tactically with, you know, customer development. You also want to do that with relationship development. Like check at the door any assumptions you have about like what it is that gets your teammate up in the morning and gets them really, really excited. I remember we did a a team building exercise at one point. This was, I think, yeah, this was a Coinbase. And I remember being really surprised by the exercise we did where we were all kind of like discussing what motivated us and what we all really liked because it was pretty atypical. There were like a a lot of variety and there were very few of the things that I was expecting to hear people say, you know, motivated them. But one of the things that was so central to every person on the team was just being motivated by the joy of working with someone else that is really at the top of their game. And like how much fun it is to feel like you're executing at a high level and you've got someone else there right next to you executing at a high level as well. And you're just kind of like running in tandem. And that's just such a bright energy that almost everyone at the team independently identified. And so that really kind of became a bit of our team spirit of like, you know, let's execute well. That's what we pride ourselves in. And that's what we want to bring joy to ourselves and to our teammates. And so that was really interesting. But, you know, you can't always know what's going to be under the surface until you really dig in and explore that with people. Speaking of exploring that with people, I'm hoping we could do a lightning round here. Favorite framework or a specific exercise that you've used to both bring your team together to identify their strengths and or build trust to align towards a a common goal. So favorite framework or exercise as it relates to working best with the people around you. Maybe you could volley back and forth and we can get a couple named if you've got them. Yeah, I'll start with one exercise that I actually had to do today (laughs) with one team, which was a a team norms exercise. I think it comes under different names with the team. There are different names for this specific exercise. 
But this exercise is usually around identifying everything from how do we work together as people within the team? What is considered to be, you know, our core working hours together? How do we communicate when we're away? How do we share feedback with each other? It has a, actually a lot of points, about 15 points that we go through as a team And it allows everyone to have a say. And the reason why this is important, it's not just a one-time thing that you do, but every time you start seeing a little bit of churn around the team, you know, there is a lot of change in people's personal lives or other things happening outside at a macro level, like with the economy, et cetera. You want to introduce that to just allow people to reflect what's happening in their lives back to what's happening at work. And the reason why I bring up this exercise within this context is because a lot of what people bring to work that stops them from being their best at work is sometimes these other things, these secondary things. And so I highly recommend for all all healthy product teams to periodically, like maybe once a quarter, do this team norms exercise and revisit things that maybe the team wants to change. Actually, you can change some of the norms more often than that through your retro, where as a team together, you talk through your weekly retro or bi-weekly retro, something that occurs more often than not and feeds back to changes that the team wants to see overall. How about you, Anna-Marie? And sorry, that was not a lightning round. I apologize, Jeff. <laughs> it's okay. We can never never be upset with you sharing knowledge. <laughs> Jeff, it's so hard to share like a framework or a tool in a lightning round without giving people like a little bit of explanation of what it is. <laughs> that was fairly lightning. I approve of how lightning that was given the question. Yeah, absolutely. So I had a really exquisite time doing this. I want to call it like a personality test concept. I was just looking it up to see what it was exactly. It's the colors, you know, red, blue, green, yellow. And there's a really fascinating program at Microsoft where they'll have a facilitator come in to work with your team. Everyone takes this personality test, which is takes quite a long time to answer all the questions. And then you get kind of like a deep dive on your personality. That's kind of fun. It's kind of cool to do like personality tests. What's really, really interesting is when you have all of your teammates around and you're all geeking out about yours and each other's personality results and, you know, all the detailed descriptions and you kind of like laugh. Oh, yeah, like I've seen you definitely like exhibit that pattern for sure. Or like that one's interesting. I haven't seen that one. And the thing that I loved about it was not just the fact that it kind of takes it into the personal, but also just the bonds that you create with people when you demonstrate deep, earnest curiosity and interest in who they are as a person. We don't often have a lot of opportunity to just be curious about each other as people in a work environment. And so setting aside an afternoon that's explicitly about that, that's explicitly about like oh, weird, like that's an interesting thing that you have that's in common with this other person. Like, oh, I wouldn't have pulled that out. But yeah, you are similar in that way. And those kinds of things just really, they open you up a lot, but they also demonstrate to other people, you know, that you're interested in them. And that really creates like a wealth of, you know, kind of like peacetime relationship and the depth of a connection that you can really build on 
for any of the hard times that you go through in work, but then also for the years and years afterwards. Like I'm still close with a lot of people that was in that room that day. And I reach out to them every once in a while. I'm like, hey, you know, we're going with this problem here with activation and, you know, with this particular thing. And I know your company has a similar thing. How do y'all solve this problem? And, you know, continuing to have that ability to reach out years later has been really, really great and really does come from having, I think, that personal emotional connection. Speaking of personal and emotional connection, Red, you have connected the world to some of the best product managers forging authentic conversations. And I understand that you have some exercises and frameworks that you've used to better know and get the best out of your people that you work with. Tell us a little more. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. I think for this one, there was two brooches that I have found to be really helpful or approaches that, again, this is not prescribing it as for everybody but things that I've personally done to help. The first one is really designed around you rather than the person you're trying to talk to. So getting to be very confident in your capabilities and abilities. People don't realize if you're very confident in yourself and you know yourself, a lot of doors begin to open because that confidence comes through in your request, your conversation. So for example, the book I'm recommending is Contribify. It's a book about the life's great question of where are you contributing and what is your purpose? What is your why? Like the Simon Sinek why, but he doesn't really have a personality test there, but this book does. So I highly recommend it. The main reason why is because I, for myself, Jeff, I was able to break through some bias from the individuals on the product teams I was approaching by explaining to them, this is my why, this is what I do. I, there is no, like I'm from sales, right? So I'm not trying to sell you. I'm not trying to, you know, get a win out of this. I'm trying to truly help and I care. And this is here's proof to show you that I am the kind of person who does care. That is just one example. Contribify if you haven't tried it. Cheap book on Amazon. It's awesome. The other one is, or affordable, sorry, not cheap. The other one that I've tried <laughs> is, Jeff, you know what happens when you, you go to the green room, you forget things. And I go to the red room. I've also forgotten things. This one's just not coming to me right now. Oh, that happens to me all the time. We're just going to make a, a laughter about it rather than dwell on it. And then if it comes and you are red, E to share, we'd love for you to do that. <laughs> oh, I got it. Thank you. Your humor is a gift to me. It's my muse. It's actually Chris Voss who gets credit for this. He has a book called Never Split the Difference, which is about negotiating tactics. And if you're on sales and you're going to product, we all know you want a date. You want a hard date. When's this product coming out so I can sell it? Or if you're on product and you're looking at this marketer and you're going, hey, can you just leave me alone and empathize a little bit? Obviously, that doesn't really work from both parties. So what this book does is it teaches you how to have a crucial conversation, which we all know everyone reads this book, but it doesn't really, it doesn't assign anything in crucial conversations in a way that I think crosses far into, into the far reaches of other roles as I've seen with Chris Foss's Never Split the Difference, where he actually just breaks it down into like the analyst type or the person who just likes to talk and everyone agree with them. There's interesting learnings from this. Again, an affordable book. It actually really helps you understand how to approach even a CFO, which if you've ever asked for money and if you're in product and you ever have to do that, this might be a really good book to learn. Dan Pink stuff is great, but this levels your stuff up in a whole new way. I'll second that recommendation. I love that book. I think it's a critical PM skill set. And it's one of the books that I reviewed in my book club podcast. One of those kind of like 12 essential PM skills. It's the best book on the topic. Well, you mentioned a podcast now. So I feel like we've got many people out there sometime, not now, listening to you as we speak. No, 
listening to in the future. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> the future of them is listening to the current us and they like podcasts. So tell us a little bit about where they could find that podcast and what you're talking about. Totally. Yeah. So it's called the Clearly Product Book Club Podcast. And my co-host and I, we haven't done any episodes recently, but the concept we were exploring was there's so many skills. It's such a broad spectrum of skills in product management. And we wanted to, instead of thinking about like product management generally, we wanted to go look at those skills specifically. So we'd pick a skill like negotiation, like writing, like speaking, things like that. And we would go read the quintessential book on that topic and then kind of discuss the ways in which those skills in that book specifically applied or didn't apply to the product management role. So the Clearly Product Book Club podcast, clearlyproduct.com, you can find it on iTunes and things like that. And it's a conversational discussion of books about key product management skills. Awesome. All right. Speaking of casual conversation, Red, that's your forte, if you will. Run it. Do your thing. Get the people from Slack. Get the people from the audience. We've got a couple faces we've seen before. Red, audience participation. You know the drill. <laughs> what, do I get like a, a flair audience participation award? You know, actually, I don't want that. I want to give that to you, all of you who are here right now. So I see Diego's out there. I got Raul. I'm not going to use last names. You don't have to worry. No one will ever even see your picture when we release this to the ether. What we want is your help knowing what it is you need from us to level your stuff up. Seriously, we are your public servants. We actually will deliver today, right now. But the way to do that, you got to raise your hand and come up on stage or ping me on LinkedIn. If you don't know how to ping me on LinkedIn, it's okay. Come up on stage. We don't bite. And you know what? If you're like us earlier in the episode in the green room, you won't even remember this, but you'll remember that you had a great time. So Jeff, I don't know if that's a selling point, but for me it is. <laughs> you are such a salesperson. I love it. <laughs> the enthusiasm. But, uh, LinkedIn's new to me. Is that how they can come up? There's no other way they can get a hold of us. Correct, right? I have no idea. I just love the enthusiasm. I was just awash in the feelings that come with, I didn't get into the specifics. <laughs> I, I tuned out and just, <laughs> just remember the emotion that you just inspired in me, Red. <laughs> So, uh, sure. <laughs> so as we await audience questions, it's my favorite thing to ask. We always try this, Red. It's worked once. Anna Maria's background, Red and I love controversy, drama, you know, we're show people. And we got it once, maybe twice. I want you to float what you think, either one of you, hopefully Anna Marie, but Sumay, you could chime in. As it relates to the topic of people over product, where PMs are getting it wrong, what is your thought that you think is most controversial that you want to float with the audience to raise their hand and refute or affirm, or Sumeya might uh, be the counterpoint, or the other one of you could be the counterpoint. Anybody have a controversial Ooh. opinion? Controversial opinion. I think politics in the workplace gets a bad name. Because I think that what people say is, oh, that's just politics, is people trying to understand other people's needs their drives and their motivations and try to align that internally in the organization. And I think that learning to quote unquote play politics insofar as it means getting to know people, what they want, what they need and how to help them get it is an essential skill in product management. Sounds controversial to me. Politics ain't so bad. Samaya, controversy or agreement? If you had asked me 15 years ago, I would have said, no, never. I would never participate in politics. Politics is like the drudgery of the common person. And I'm so above that. <laughs> Literally, that was my immature, you know, early career person thinking around this, where I believed, you know, meritocracy is 
based on you keeping your head down and letting your amazing work show through. No, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> if you want to make it in any corporation, you have to basically understand the unwritten rules. You need to develop skills that allow you to communicate with people at different levels through different means and you should be able to basically understand the norms that you need to adopt or understand so you can maneuver the system and achieve what you need. Every corporation is a system of some kind and every system has levers, has actors, has power dynamics and for you to succeed or for your team even forget about you let's say you don't want to become a manager or you know a director or a vp but you want your team of engineers and designers and you know your product team to get the resources they need you are going to have to participate in some level of politics Okay, so we didn't get controversy. We got agreement, but maybe somebody in the audience, anybody, has a different opinion, and then the controversy would strike. I did a personality test with my eyeballs. It's called eyeball personality testing. It's not biased at all. And I got to tell you, I think this might be a crowd that just likes to listen, Jeff. And that's a, that's a first in two years, but uh, I don't know what to do to break the trend. That wasn't an eyeball test. I mean, the only thing that you did with your eyeballs is realize that nobody raised their hand. <laughs> so. But I guess, yes, that test, it did pass. All right, so strike one, Anna-Marie. It's been great having you on the show, but zero for one on controversy. Do you have anything else for us? Mm, I thought politics was surely going to be controversial. You would think. (laughs) Well, one trick here. You have to know, it's not politics that stirs us up. It's frameworks. Frameworks. And uh, Mm. I know a collector of frameworks and a hater. That's a strong word. A recycler of frameworks. And I'm sitting right next to them. So... <clears throat> Sumail. So, you know, and Marie, if there's something you're really passionate framework wise, I'm pretty sure we'll get the typical response from a PM that says they agree with you. But in reality, the heat, it's coming. <laughs> That's amazing. Let's see. Frameworks. I'm trying to think of like what controversial frameworks I might have. Um, safe. <laughs> safe is always controversial. Tell me more. Tell me more. What do you think oh, is so controversial? I think it's a waste of time. Like a complete waste of time. But there are so many companies in the U.S., a lot of large corporations that use it. Some well-known names. But anyway. Maybe I'll go controversial meta-framework controversy here. Okay, so my perspective is that frameworks are incredible tools for teaching you how to think and guide rails to ensure that you are thinking well. But I think that they are very often an absolute waste of time. And I think that once you've gotten to a point where you can deploy a framework pretty effectively, actually even using it in any capacity, I think is a waste of time compared to like thinking logically through whether something is a good idea or not. And just trying to understand like back to first principles. I think a lot of times people pull up frameworks like, okay, let's use like rice and let's look at like frequency and severity and like all of these things. And they pour so much time and energy into like filling these frameworks with data so that they can kind of abscond from the role of making the decision and saying like, I think this is better here are a couple reasons why I think it's better. And like, I'm not going to go fill out a whole framework process on it. So I think this goes more into like the process and less about people. But generally speaking, I think most process is a waste of time. 
That sounds controversial. Sumeya, what do you got for us? Let me say it this way. If your reason of doing something is because it's in the framework, which you hear a lot of people say, oh, why are we doing this? And they'll say, it's part of this framework. And they don't actually have any other reason for it, such as a need or something broken that needs to be fixed or something that needs to be done, you know, like an outcome that needs to be achieved, then yes, frameworks are a waste of time. But if you are trying to figure out a problem, if you have a problem in front of you and you're not really sure how to go about solving it, instead of taking a lot of time ideating on your own framework, literally, because the framework is just a series of steps or questions you ask, then maybe you can pick up a framework that has been tried and has been successful in different scenarios and see if it might work. And that's one. Two, never be dogmatic about any of that stuff. If it doesn't work, don't use it. I've seen a lot of people try to force things down, and especially if they try to do it at scale. Mm. It takes a long time for you to be able to tell if a framework is not going to work at scale, and so many millions of dollars are wasted every year by so many companies just trying to drive frameworks. So I think I agree with what Anna Marie said. It doesn't lessen my liking of frameworks. I mean, I don't see a contradiction between the two. Mm. Well, I would love to hear, Anna Marie, what your definition of a framework is. I would say a framework is kind of an algorithmic sequence of things to consider that's been kind of codified and printed out on a sheet and stuck on your the side of your computer. So a framework is, you know, okay, like let's think about these. One of my favorite frameworks actually is the Four Forces, which is different from Porter's. I think it's brilliant. I don't know if any of you have played around with this framework. It's one of my favorites, but it's the concept of when someone's switching from something old to something new, there are four forces that influence whether they make that switch or not. And, you know, the first force is like they're being pushed away from their old solution for some reason. And the second force is they're being pulled to this specific solution for some reason. And then there's, you know, the things that kind of hold them back from that specific solution. And then there's the kind of inertia that keeps them with the old. And so that is a useful thing to like see printed out of like, okay, I am trying to think about how to get someone to switch from using Zoom or Meet to using Vowel for all of their video conferencing. And it's useful to see it like kind of printed out and look at like those four things. But it's also once you've learned that the four forces are things that you can incorporate that is just native thinking that is in your mind all the time, where instead of saying like, okay, let me think about what's the push away from Zoom and what's the pull to vowel. Instead, I think like, okay, how, like, as I think about like generally strategically what we're working on or, you know, any one particular feature that we're talking about putting on the roadmap or not, those four forces are part of the complete set of things that I'm thinking about in some latent way when I'm considering something. And so I think when I define framework, I define it as kind of putting the kind of fine print and like really structured framework, but using the very, very specific language of this particular thing and then that particular thing and then this particular thing versus using that body of knowledge that's been integrated into everything you know as part of how you think. I think anyone who has been practicing product management for a while probably uses language specific to a framework only when they're trying to teach someone on the team or they're trying to make a number of people think about something in a specific way. So, you know, if you're talking about individually as a person, 
once you learn a framework, then you don't need to think about that framework in exactly that same way. I agree with that. It's like normal. It's like you learn, you know, the numbers from one to 10. You don't need to think about, oh, all the numbers are in order one to 10 every single time. It's part of your intellectual capabilities then to be able to use that going forward. But what happens is, as you lead other product managers and you're trying to mentor product managers and this podcast talks a lot about how to succeed in product management, especially for new people. I think it's helpful sometimes if you're talking to someone in only 30 minutes and you don't have a chance to do something with them hands-on, to talk about frameworks where there is a sense of body of work, where there are case studies that people can find online and where it can help people think through almost like a checklist. So if this is your first time facing a problem or you're trying to communicate how to think about a problem with someone who hasn't had that extensive experience or a well-rounded one or however you want to describe that, I think frameworks are a necessary part of doing this efficiently. Well, I think we have worked our way all the way back to agreeing again, because I totally agree. (laughs) I do think absolutely that when you are trying to impart knowledge from one brain to another, a framework is one of the absolute best ways to do that. And whether that knowledge is training to, you know, train someone or whether it's convincing because you're trying to, you know, get some buy-in. Although I would argue that buy-in is best accomplished through personal relationships, not through framework demonstrations. But I do think for training especially, that's one of the best ways to communicate ways to think is like, here's a framework, here's a case study of that framework applied. Here's how you might want to incorporate it to the problem you're solving now. Totally agree. So sorry, Jeff, I thought we had some controversy. That's always what happens. But that's part of because going back to the title of today, people over product, product managers really value the people and finding points of alignment and points of agreement and sharing the knowledge and moving, in product manager's case, moving the business and their customers forward, but here, moving knowledge forward. So it's in your DNA as product managers to find alignment wherever you can. But you gave us some controversy, so I'm thankful for that. Oh, Diego's asking (laughs) to speak. Let's see. What would you like to say? Uh, Hi, Well, I got a question. It's really interesting, people over product, and I'm really interested in knowing about how you manage young stakeholders that have the the base of your product, but they are not really experienced. How you, like PM, can manage that? All right, that is a great question. Just a quick clarifying question. Diego, you're saying that you have people on the team or stakeholders who influence the product and they don't have experience in what? Yeah, they don't have a lot of experience in their field, for example, in retail, because the company has moved a lot of people. So the team is building a retail product, but the stakeholders don't have experience in retail. Yeah, Yeah, they don't have a lot of experience in retail because they are kind of new. Yeah, where is the pushback or the challenge coming from? For example, I have experience in retail. I have been designing the product, but they are saying, okay, this feature is interesting. I like this. Oh, I don't like this. And they, in the time, they thought, oh, we should put the first feature that you told us because we know right now the impact of that. You have a hypothesis 
and they're pushing back on it because they believe they know better. Yeah, that's okay. right. <laughs> and what you're proposing to them, is it driven by user research? Or yeah, it's by uh, research and by experience also. In- interesting. And what have you tried with them so far? What approaches have you tried? Yeah, I tried different things. For example, I tried to see what the first, what our customers want. Uh, second, the trendings of the market. Third, for example, I tried to get to know better the, the people, these stakeholders. And also, I have been uh, with some of them. I have a good relationship. And with others, I have kind of a bad relation because they push what they want, but that's not what the product needs. Yeah, I think that's actually something that a lot of PMs see, where they have some stakeholders that are supportive, they are on board, they seem to be aligned, and then others that are not. Do you have an opportunity? So a couple of tactics I usually use in those situations, and then Anna Marie, I'd love to to hear about what you have in mind. The first one is I design small experiments. So it's not about me being great or the team being great, but it's about a hypothesis that we want to test. And we would consider it to be successful based on certain outcomes. And so, you know, the bets you're making then are not too big. People are willing to say, people are usually willing to take on a bet that lasts for a couple of weeks or costs, let's say, 0.1% of the budget for that product. So just design a small experiment to help you and your stakeholder get additional data so that you can, it's not just about user interviews, but then it's about some data that you have gotten that gives you a signal towards which direction would be the right one. So that's the first one, designing experimentation to obtain data that you can support your you know, hypothesis with or learn from. And then the second one is having the stakeholders that support that idea do some behind-the-scenes management. So if you have advocates, you have people who believe strongly or, you know, this is such a high threshold of success and failure that's placed on this bet, then you should bring those advocates along and have them help you in these conversations. Anna Marie, what do you have? Yeah, I love those pieces of advice. I think one thing to keep in mind here is the way the human brain works is if you say you don't want something, especially if you say it in front of other people, and then, you know, you're challenged and you maybe you dig in your heels, it's going to be very, very hard to change your mind. Because the more you say you believe in something, the harder it is for you to walk that opinion back. You just start to believe it more and more and gets locked in your brain. So the first thing I would recommend is like, don't talk about this in group settings, especially not where you have someone who's opposed to the idea saying that they're opposed to the idea in front of other people. Because when you put an idea out there and other people hear you say that, your brain is like, okay, well, now I'm like the person who disagrees with this and I can't change my mind. So I would definitely say like behind the scenes is like the way to go. So try to talk to the people who disagree individually by themselves just you and them. The other thing I would recommend is try to ask them, you know, to Samia's point about what experiment you could do. One question I like to ask is what could change your mind? What information, what data, what research, what study, what experiment, 
what would convince you that we should do it this other way? And I wouldn't say things like I'm right and you're wrong or anything like that, but just, you know, because you don't want to, you know, get people to dig their heels in, but just ask them like, what would convince you that that you're wrong? And one thing I also often like to do in this situation is say like, I don't know hundred percent that I'm right. Like there's things that could change my perspective. And so you kind of like come into the conversation with openness and you invite openness on the other side and try to get the other person to to kind of explain to you what it is that, that would be enough for them to say like, okay, yes, I agree. And I've done this pretty successfully in environments where people were like really, really committed to a particular course of action. And I was really committed to the opposite course of action. You know, we talked it out and I said, you know, what is it that you're afraid would happen if we did this? You know, what is it that would convince you that we're at a place where we don't need to do that and we can do it this other way? And so you just kind of like ask questions, get curious, try to understand what's driving them and what's motivating them and try to see if you can find something that you can agree on that would give you the information that they would agree would be enough information for them to say, okay, yes, let's do this. So maybe it's an experiment. You say like, what if we did this experiment and we saw this result? Would that be enough? And then the last thing is you can always bring research to a stakeholder directly. Like here's a video of someone trying to use that idea of like, here's a paper prototype. We gave it to someone. They were like, I don't understand this because I think a lot of times people are pretty removed from the actual users and the actual user experience. And when you show it to them, sometimes it can be pretty jarring and they're like, oh yeah, no, that's not going to work. That's always a great censure as a PM. All right. Thank you, Diego. I hope they got their question answered. And now it's time to give us some concluding thoughts. I'd love to hear from each of you. What is it that you would like the audience to take away? And hopefully you can give just a few bullet points so that they really hold on to it and keep your message as they go out into the world. I'll start with Sumeya. What are the bullet points that you want to leave the audience with? Yeah, I think one of the things I was thinking about when I was thinking about this topic before we started the podcast was this phrase that was controversial over the past 15 years, culture eats strategy for breakfast or something like that. (laughs) I think uh, it's a Peter Drucker saying. And what has been interesting is since he said that, A lot of other thinkers in this area and people who do research have talked about, oh, it's not an either or, of course. And even Peter Drucker said that it's about, you know, both of those two elements working together. The reason why I think about strategy and culture within this context is because if you were to extrapolate and take product and people up one level or even within the product team, The product, your strategy around the product or your people and your culture within the product team are extremely interconnected. Both of them are important. And, you know, the skills you need to build to be successful need to be in both areas. And there is also a third area, which is execution. So those three, people, product, and execution, ultimately, are all of those are needed for you to become a successful product manager. All right. Thank you, Samea. Anne-Marie, closing thoughts. Closing thoughts. Yeah. So three things really stand out to me as well when you think about product success, the things we've talked about today. So first of all, the success that you're going to experience in one organization is not transferable directly to the next organization. And that's a real good lesson to think about, especially if you are maybe you know making your first transition into product from a different organization or your first PM role to another PM role. You really have to build up the trust and goodwill of the people around you, especially your leadership 
relationship chain. And so those relationships, you need to remember, it's not just about the skills that you have. It is really more so about the trust that you have and the organization gives to you. That's point number one. Point number two is if you ever find yourself doing a lot more work than it feels like you should have to do for something to get an approval or to get something to, you know, get over the line, you're probably missing a personal relationship. There's probably something that people don't trust you about or you you don't understand someone's fears or their motivations. So instead of spending all that time doing another round of research or an, another round of data collection and analysis, spend your time trying to figure out who here do you need to get to know better in order to understand what's going on in order to unblock your team and move things forward? And the third point here is as you are doing that, one of the best ways to really make those personal relationships is to demonstrate genuine curiosity and interest in the other person. Really try to understand like who they are, what they're motivated by. The organizations have so many interesting incentive structures that are at play. And humans also, you know, we have so many incentive structures in our own lives as well. So there's a lot there to be interested and curious about. And the more interested, the more curious and the more genuine you are, the more likely it is that you'll develop that relationship that will help you, you know, unblock the organization, unblock your team, and also develop relationships that can last, you know, a lifetime through your career. So those are my three points. I will also quickly plug, if you're listening to this, you can try Vowel, our video conferencing product with live transcription and clipping and sharing and take all of your video conferences and turn those into shareable, searchable knowledge. We have a code here for a three months free pro license. So it's how to succeed PM. If you go to vowel.com, you can sign up with how to succeed PM for three months free. All right. So they didn't just get knowledge, they get three months free. So thank Vowel. So thank you, Anna Marie, for joining us today. And thank you for sharing your perspective and getting a little controversy for us. Really appreciate it. I'm going to conclude just with my takeaways is, you know, the question people over product, I think the people creating the product is really important. And the people that the products are serving is really important. And that's why we've started the Inclusive Product Management Accelerator, a free program devoted to empowering professionals from historically marginalized communities to land their first product manager role. It's going to take everybody to build a more diverse, inclusive, and skilled product management community. And we hope you'll join us. Join us in this effort as a volunteer. If you're an aspiring product manager who's committed to inclusion, join us as a fellow. Applications will start probably in, not till January. But if your company is looking to hire, hire some of the brilliant people who've been carefully selected, rigorously trained, and will be continuously supported once they're on the job. So that's my plug. And that's my concluding thought. And Red, you want to close us out? I forgot about you, but you deserve a voice here, man. I don't deserve anything, man. I, I would not exist without the product manager. So I am a servant to the community. I want to thank everyone who listened and to those who asked questions that we couldn't address today. Come back, please. We're going to keep doing this on LinkedIn. I love this experience, Jeff. I'm very, very honored that you chose to have me and Samea as partners in crime, my friend. And I hope to have more controversy going forward. And no green rooms. No green rooms. No more green rooms. No more cream. We all have to run. But Anna Maria, it was great to see you. Samaya, thank you. Red, appreciate you as always. And Raul, great to see you there too, man. Hope everybody has a great day. <laughs>